Open your Bibles to James chapter 1. Verses 12 through 18 will be our text today. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. This is the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we ask that you would this morning open your word to us by your spirit, illuminate your word, and let it transform us. And conform us to the very image of the Son of Glory. Father, we ask that your word, as we read it, as we hear it, would bring renewal to our minds, that we would be more closely conformed to you in every way, spiritually, mentally, and physically as we walk out our faith for your glory. We ask these things, Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That is a promise given to us here in God's Word. The blessing James speaks of here is not any form of temporal blessing. This is not a promise of wealth and prosperity. But it is an eschatological blessing, meaning it has to do with the sort of spiritual or eternal Blessing promised to those who have endured trial and testing, showing the genuineness of their faith. It's not that we won't reap blessing here on this earth as we walk in obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. But this blessing here is a blessing that points us to the day when our faith will be judged as approved and genuine. As we go through this life and we endure the testing of our faith. And if you haven't noticed, life is full of tests. Our faith is being tested constantly. Temptations are simply trials that test our obedience. 
And there are many temptations that we face constantly, and they come in all forms, all shapes, all sizes, some great, some small. And it's often the small things that present the greatest temptations for us. Because it's the little foxes that spoil the vine. That's what Solomon writes in the Song of Songs. It's the little things that gnaw away at our fruitfulness that left unhindered or unattended will eventually reap the greatest destruction. Small things are often easier to give into because we see small things as no big deal. Ah, that's no big deal. Ah, it's not going to hurt this one time. But if we say that and we do that enough times, all those small things keep adding up to create bigger things, even giant problems in our life. We must be vigilant and not ignore, not justify temptations that come in small and seemingly insignificant ways. We certainly must not ignore justify temptations that come in obvious and big ways. We don't do that. We all kind of get that, right? It's those little things. This is why Jesus said, if you are faithful over the little things, I will make you master over great things. We're tempted in both small and great ways. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, whatever it may be and however it presents itself to us. That blessing will endure and become a crown of life, James says. Temptations test us. The man who endures temptation is blessed for he's been tested and found approved or genuine. Obedient endurance in temptation results in becoming tested and approved. That's why in my, my, my translation of the Bible here, blessed, the, blessed is the man who endures temptation for when he has been approved, when he has been tested, when his faith has been shown, proved, Tested to be genuine. Someone gave you a, a gold ring and said it was worth many thousands of dollars. Maybe it had a diamond in it. I'll give you a really good deal on this gold ring with a diamond. I'll let you have this $10,000 ring for only $1,000. You might want to go get that gold and that diamond tested to make sure it's genuine before you dole out your hard-earned cash. We understand that. Well, this is what James is writing about here when he talks about the testing of our faith or the proving of our faith. Is your faith genuine? How are you going to know whether your faith is genuine? Well, God is going to allow temptations and testings to come to you to prove to approve your faith. Obedient endurance and temptation results in becoming tested and approved, thus passing the test that approves us, that results in the crown of life that's promised us who love him. If we were honest, we often fail the test, not because we could not pass the test, but too often because we would not pass 
pass the test. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in his letter to the Romans, chapter 7, verse 19 and 20. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. Now, if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. Paul then asked this question, who can deliver me from this body of death? And here's his answer in verse 25. I thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Paul was in no way justifying the sin of giving into temptation. He is honestly dealing with the struggle of sin we all face because of the law of sin at work in our flesh. In fact, Paul is pointing us to obedience to God through the grace given to us in Jesus Christ. This is why we are called to take up our cross daily. The flesh, the body, and mind, you do realize your flesh is not just this body. But the Bible talks about your carnal or your fleshly mind. We have a fleshly mind, but we also have the mind of Christ. And we are to renew our fleshly mind to the mind of Christ. So when we talk about crucifying the flesh, it is crucifying the flesh of our mind as well as the flesh of these members. And this is why we're called to take up our cross daily. To be crucified with Christ. Otherwise, our flesh seeks to rule over us. And it will if we do not nail it to the cross. If we do not see it crucified, count it crucified every day. God did not choose us in him before the foundation of the world because he knew that we would always or even almost always pass the test. We are tempted with the temptations that come from our own desires. Still, God chose us in him for no other reason than it it was his good pleasure to do so. He raised us up when we were dead in our sin. And God does not love you and God does not choose you because you passed a test. That's what our fallen nature, that's what our carnal mind wants to believe. God loves me because I deserve to be loved. God chose me because I passed the test. You you know, the world is full of tests that we take to get selected, to to get entrance. You got to take this test to find out if you qualify to join the army or not. I got a nephew who took the test for the Space Force. Well, listen, God doesn't accept you into his army. God doesn't accept you into his family. God doesn't make you his child because you passed some test. He's not waiting to see what you scored on the test. He already knows you failed it. And he still chose you. It's pretty good news. God did not choose us in him before the foundation of the world because we passed the test. He chose us because it was his good pleasure to do so. He raised us up when we were dead in our sin. God does not love you. He doesn't choose you because you passed that test or because you loved him. We all fail the test from birth on, and God still chooses us in Christ. God still 
chooses to love us even though we are sinful. This is not to justify our sinfulness. This is to magnify the grace of God. And when the grace of God is properly magnified in our life, we will want to flee from and shed ourselves of that sinfulness of the flesh. The fact that we even have a choice to resist temptation and obey God is His grace working in us. Apart from the grace of God given to us in Jesus Christ, we have no choice except sin. Outside of Christ, we are sin, and we are called darkness. Not only because we choose to be, but because we have no choice but to be. We are darkness until God calls us to be light in the Lord through the new birth by the Spirit. Therefore, our temptation does not come from God, but from the resources of our own sin our own darkness residing in our carnal, fallen nature. Jesus Christ has delivered us from our sin and from our darkness, having redeemed us by His blood. Now the crown of life is promised to those who love Him. Do you love Him? If you can answer that question in the affirmative and say, Yes, I love Him then know that you love him because he first loved you. He put his love in your heart so that you could, in turn, return that love to him. Why do you love him? Because he first loved and he chose you in him before the foundation of the world. James goes on, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God is not tempting us to sin. The scripture is clear. God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. God does not solicit us to evil. We solicit ourselves. God does not send trials on us to make us worse, but to make us better. Remember, the testing of our faith produces patience. And when patience has had its perfect and complete work, we become what? We become children of God, perfect and complete, lacking nothing. God is doing a work in us, a good work in us. Remember, the testing of our faith produces patience. And we are to let patience have its perfect work that we become perfect and complete. In the midst of our faith being tested, our temptation is to grow impatient. Isn't it funny? I was talking to someone the other day, and I said, how can I pray for you? And they said, pray, pray for patience. I need patience. You know, I always think about the scene from the movie Bruce Almighty where Al Mighty, the waiter, is there. And the, the girl asks for patience. And he says, you know, when you ask God for patience, he gives you opportunity. And so I told this person who asked me to pray for them for patience. I said, you know, 
When we pray for patience, God is going to give you the opportunity to exercise that patience. She goes, oh, maybe I don't want you to pray for patience. No, we have to pray for patience. We must have patience. And we can't expect to receive patience and not have the opportunity to exercise it because otherwise, how will you know whether you have patience or not? Unless you have the ability to exercise it. Well, our temptation when our faith is being tested is to grow impatient and give in, cutting short the work of the Spirit through the testing of our faith. But do you realize that God is patient? He is so long-suffering, and thank the Lord He is. And God will let us go around the mountain as many times as we need to. Until we come to the place to actually choose to deal with the sin that tempts us. I always tell people, you know, I've been here for a long time. Now, people say, you know, I think I just need to... I literally have had people say this. I think I need to leave this town. I think I need to leave this marriage. I think I need to leave my family. I think I need to, you know... I'm like, why? Well, I just, I need a break. I need to get away. What are you running to? Because whatever sin you're trying to run from here, you're just going to run right into it wherever you're going. And God will let us run, but you cannot hide from your sin. And if you think you can leave or change your environment in a way that's going to deliver you from your sin, you're wrong. The only thing that will deliver you from your sin is Jesus. And the only thing that will give you the power to deal with your sin, to put away your sin, is the cross. And this is why we're called to take up our cross daily and to follow Him. So don't grow impatient with the testing of your faith. We apply the cross and we continue to apply it in humble repentance until it is crucified, dead, and buried. Don't dig it up once it's been put away. Don't pull that dead thing back out and carry it around. Thankfully, God is much more long-suffering than we are as he continues to provide the testing of our faith to produce in us the patience required to bring about his perfect and complete work in us. The testing of our faith comes from God for our good. The temptation for evil comes, but it does not come from God. There is a difference. God is not tempting you with evil. God is testing your faith to do a good work in you. God doesn't have to tempt you with evil. Because our temptation doesn't come from God. Our temptation comes from within ourselves. Listen to verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Our temptation comes from our own desires. It does not come from God, and it very often does not even come from the devil. We blame a lot on the devil that's not the devil's fault. Because the Bible is very clear, our biggest problem sometimes is not someone or something out here, it's what's right in here. It's what's in my heart, and it's what is between my ears. And both of them need to be made new. 
Well, you can't make your heart new. Only God can do that. And if you've been born again, if you're regenerate, if God has by His Spirit caused you to become a new creation, He's given you a new heart. So your problem's not your heart is bad. Your problem may be you've never bothered to renew your mind. Because God doesn't just snap His fingers and make your mind new the way He made your heart new. We have been charged to walk in obedience, to crucify our flesh, and in that process, apply the Word of God so that we are transformed by the renewing of our mind. Present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable act of worship. No longer being conformed to this world, but being transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. So our temptation comes from our own desires, not from God, not even from the devil, but from our own desires. James indicates that each one is tempted when he's drawn away, when he's lured out by his own desires or lusts and baited to go after sin. The phrase drawn away here is used only here in the New Testament. James employs a fishing or a hunting metaphor here. To describe how we are drawn, dragged, carried away out of safety and into sin by our own lusts. It implies a craving such as a fish or some prey that is drawn out of the safety of cover being lured into danger to take the bait. This is the believer who gives into the temptation of sinful cravings to carry him away into sin. We're drawn away by our own desires and enticed. This word enticed is the action of baiting or laying the snare for our entrapment. We are enticed by the sin that draws us away and lures us through our cravings. In other words, that enticement doesn't come from out here. It comes from in here. It comes from here. Now, something out there may trigger it, but it's not that thing out there that's pulling you away. It's what's in you that's pulling you away, that's carrying you away, that's enticing you. So it is not God but our own lustful desires and cravings that bait us and lay the snare for us to give into our temptation to sin. We must not only resist those sinful cravings, but we must cast them down and make them obey Christ. Listen to these powerful words the Apostle Paul writes concerning our struggle within our own mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. It's a scripture I would advise every one of you to memorize if you have not already memorized it. And apply it every time you're tempted. Apply it every time you're struggling with thoughts and cravings. Listen to these words. For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity 
to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. So think about these words here in these verses. Strongholds, arguments, knowledge. All of these are related to thoughts. Thoughts we must take captive to the obedience of Christ. Punishing disobedience, how? Through our obedience. There is a spiritual warfare taking place in the battleground of your mind. Sin is present and at work in our members, but it is our mind that directs our members to either resist the sin or obey it. Either resist the temptation or obey the temptation, the impulse to engage in sin. I don't know if anybody's a Star Trek fan, but there was a Star Trek movie where Captain Picard was taken captive by the Borg. You remember that? Anybody a Star Trek fan? And the Borg told Captain Picard, resistance is futile. Well, I'm going to tell you, resistance is not futile. It's actually biblical. You are commanded to resist sin. Submit yourself to God. Resist sin, resist the devil, resist temptation. The Bible says when you submit yourself to God and resist the devil, he'll flee from you. You are not to give in to temptation, you're to resist temptation. It is biblical. Both Paul and James place this battle in the realm of our minds. James makes this clear in the next verse. Listen to verse 15. Then when desire, where is desire? It's, it's here. You think about that thing you desire. You contemplate that thing you desire, that sin you desire. You, you think about those things. When desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. When, di- when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. There is a progression here. Desire is present. If left unchecked, desire conceives. You can't control all the things that come into your mind, but you can control what you do with them once you realize they're there. So desire that is present and left unchecked conceives. When desire has conceived, still left unchecked, it gives birth to sin. And once sin is birthed, still left unchecked, that sin becomes a habit. And our habitual sin, still unchecked when it is full grown, becomes the practice that defines our character, that defines our life, and ultimately brings forth death. It's not falling into sin that is the problem. It's staying in our sin that we've fallen into. 1 John talks about this. It's the practice of sin that said, where John says, if you practice sin, then you, you don't belong to Jesus. You're not truly saved if the practice of your life is sinful. He's not talking about falling into sin, repenting of your sin, and then trusting Jesus for your forgiveness. He's talking about, in large part, a lot of the people that we met yesterday who profess to be Christians but see no problem with their lifestyle. And are actually proud of their sin. Oh, I, I, I love Jesus too, just like you do. 
you should get to know the Jesus I know because he doesn't, he doesn't hate like you hate. There's nothing wrong with me and Jesus. And the practice of my lifestyle is what many people out there yesterday said. And it's what they demonstrate. Well, that is sin left unchecked. That now defines a lifestyle that ultimately will bring forth death. Sin, when it's full grown, brings forth death, James says. The death that sin produces can be temporal in this life or eternal. Death from sin can take many forms here in this life. We've all experienced this in some form or fashion. We all know people, friends, family members, acquaintances, who have allowed sin to bring death to hopes and dreams, death to marriages and families that are destroyed because of sin. Even life itself, physical and spiritual, can be destroyed by the death that is brought forth by sin. The good news is that Jesus has conquered sin and death, and in Christ, so do we. In other words, you don't have to remain in sin and death. If you belong to Jesus, in fact, the Bible commands you to no longer live in sin, to walk in sin. This is why James exhorts us to resist the devil, which is to say resist the temptation of sin and evil. In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have the power to resist the temptation to sin. And we do this by walking in the Spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of our flesh. That sounds simplistic, and it actually is. It is simple, but I grant it is not always easy. Submit yourself to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Simple, but not easy. And that's why it's called spiritual warfare. Jesus never said it would be easy. He said, if you love me, obey me. Not because it's easy, but because it's necessary. He said that knowing, he said that knowing he has won the war. Jesus didn't tell you to obey him and then not give you the means in which to walk in that obedience. It's why you and I have the Holy Spirit living in us. Jesus doesn't command us to do something and then not give us the power to actually obey, the grace to actually obey. That should be a constant prayer that we pray, God, give me the grace to obey. Because your obedience to God is by His grace. We need to recognize that. But that does not mean that we are not responsible to actually obey. God, I'm waiting for your grace to obey. In the meantime, I'm just going to keep sinning. No. Obey Him. Pray for more grace. To be more obedient. Trust Him. For His forgiveness when you fall into sin. And the grace to get out of that sin and get back up and start pressing into Jesus and moving forward. Again, thank God for his grace and long-suffering with us. It's not God who is in danger of giving up on us. It is us. The work of the Spirit in us is producing the perfect work of patience. And when we fall, when we fail, 
When we fall into sin, we must patiently and consistently repent and get back up. We keep pressing into and looking unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. The devil is a liar. In fact, Jesus calls him the father of lies. And we must not believe his lies, but we must also not believe the lies that we tell ourselves. Verse 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. We must not be deceived. The way we will keep from being deceived is by staying in the truth. In other words, go to the word. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free, Jesus said. And the way we shall know the truth is by staying in God's word and embracing the work of the Holy Spirit, not running away from God when we fail, when we fall. Run to God. Run to his grace. Run to his mercy. Run to him and embrace the work of the cross in your life. We must not be deceived about where temptations for evil come from. They do not come from God. We must also not be deceived about where every good and perfect gift comes from. Verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. In this verse, James is making the contrast between sin as presented in verse 15 to every gift from above referenced here in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. There are two words used here for gift in this verse. The first word, as in every good gift, is actually the act of giving or the gift in its initiatory state. The second word, as in every perfect gift, is the thing given that is described as perfect or complete. James is making the contrast of the gift from above to the sin within. The good gift that is being given stands in contrast to sin in its initiatory stage of desire waiting to conceive. So the perfect gift stands in contrast to the sin that is full-grown in bringing forth death. I want you to see the contrast here that James is presenting to us. You can think of it like this. Just as we have the progression of sin starting with an evil desire conceived and leading to death, here we have the progression of the gift initially given leading to the full completion of its purpose in eternal life. There is a work God's joining you, and the promise is that your destiny is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You will, in Christ, experience ultimate glorification one day, because God has promised that he's not going to stop the work he began in you. In fact, Philippians 1.6 says he will complete it even until the day of Jesus Christ. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from God above contrasted with the sinful desires springing from within man. Every man has these lusts. They are consistent with man's sin nature, or as Paul calls, the old man that is to be crucified with Christ, along with all of its lusts. 
these good and perfect gifts are not only gifts that relate to this present life, and we can make an inexhaustible list of those gifts. You know, it might be a good exercise for all of us to do sometimes is just begin to write down every gift you can think of that God has given to you. And don't forget the air you breathe. And don't forget the sun that shines on you. And don't forget the rain that falls to the earth. And don't forget all the things that we walk by and walk in every day and take for granted. They are gifts from God. But these gifts that are called perfect, every perfect gift, these are greater than just these constant temporal gifts that are all around us. These are such perfect gifts as the gifts of righteousness, the gift of the remission of our sins, the gift of adoption, the gift of regeneration, the gift of eternal life. These gifts are every spiritual blessing that he's blessed us with in Christ. These are more than the temporal gifts that God pours out on us constantly. These are the spiritual and eternal gifts that endure, that are gained only in Christ. All of the atheists there yesterday were walking around taking advantage of benefactors of God's gifts just poured out all over them while they were rejecting God the whole time. But there are other gifts that they will never experience because those gifts, the perfect gifts that James talks about here, those gifts are only gained in Christ. This line of thought concerning gifts from above in contrast to the sin within, should also take us back to verses 3 through 5, where James writes of the testing of our faith and the need for wisdom from God. Wisdom is a gift from above. If you need wisdom, ask, and God will give it abundantly and liberally without reproach. So wisdom is a gift from above, James would have in mind as he writes his letter here. It is a gift needed to endure the testing of, of our faith. You need wisdom. I need wisdom to endure the testings that come in life. James knows that it is not God who wavers and changes, but man. We fail to receive wisdom because we waver. Men who waver may blame God for their failings. In those cases, the need for wisdom could not be greater. Wisdom from God is needed to stand in the time of testing. Wisdom is a gift from above we constantly need as our faith is constantly tested. It is from the Father of lights these good and perfect gifts come down. He's called the Father of lights because he is the creator of all lights. In all of the hosts of light in the heavens, both celestial and spiritual, he is the creator of sun, moon, and stars, but also the angelic hosts of light. The Father of lights is not only the creator of light, but he is light. First John 1 John 1.5, John writes that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Though we once were darkness, the Father of lights in his grace has called us and made us light in the Lord. This is his good and perfect gift made manifest in you by the grace through faith. In Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are to walk in the light as he is in the light. 
God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. And this is why we are to walk in his light. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of light, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. So James writes that with the Father of lights, there is no variation or shadow of turning. The reference here is to the celestial lights in the heavens that show variation and cast shadow of turning. The sun, moon, and the stars are well known for changing, but God is unchanging. The sun rises and sets. The moon goes through its phases. The stars traverse the skies, and sun and moon are darkened by eclipse. God has none of these variations or shadows of turning. God neither changes, nor is he changed, nor is he darkened by shadow from change. James has a point in all of this celestial imagery. The heavens and its bodies change, but God does not. God sins good things. The good things of God are not always easy. They're not always sweet. In fact, sometimes they are bitter. Can you think of a bitter thing that is good beyond our imagination? Can you think of a thing that is good that doesn't look good? Surely didn't feel good? What about the cross? What about the Son of God? What about the creator of heaven and earth crucified on a cross he created? From a tree he created. Placed there by men he created. That looked like utter defeat. That was actually evil. But yet, the goodness of the cross has saved us and has saved the world. And what I'm saying is the goodness that God sends to us doesn't always look good to us, doesn't always feel good to us, may not sound good to us. But do you trust what you see, what you feel, and what you can perceive in this flesh? Or do you trust God and what he has declared in his word? Well, I would would encourage you to trust God and what he declares in his word. God sends good things. God does not send evil as we understand it in our finite minds. In our finite minds, the cross appeared not a good thing. But in God's eternal plan and purpose, thank God for the cross of Christ and the crucifixion of the Son of God as horrendous and as evil as it was. Even in the midst of evil, God is working all things together for good. And the good he is working is a good that is beyond our imagination. I'm a great fan of of J.R.R. Tolkien. And I've read the Lord of the Rings trilogies several times. may read them again after writing this sermon. At the end of Tolkien's epic Lord of the Rings trilogy, The Return of the King, when Sam Gamgee awakens to find Gandalf, the wizard, and himself alive, he asks a stirring question about the sadness of the world he had come to know. 
Tolkien, in his masterful interaction between a hobbit and a wizard, gives a glimpse into the promise we have in Christ. And I quote, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then I thought I was dead myself. Is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? A great shadow has departed, said Gandalf. And then he laughed, and the sound was like music, or like water in a parched land. And as he listened, the thought came to Sam that he had not heard laughter, the pure sound of merriment for days upon days without count. As good as it gets in this life, on this earth. We have not heard the true sound of laughter. We have not experienced true merriment. It's waiting for us. I don't say that so that we don't appreciate what we have here, we should appreciate it greatly. But I say it so that we don't we don't put our trust in everything we have here. Like so many of the people I met yesterday, their only hope is in this life. And for some of them, this life is as close as they'll ever get to heaven. And you may be walking through hell in your life here on earth. But I'm going to tell you what. If you are in Christ, this is as close as you'll ever come to hell. Because God has laughter, merriment, and joy unspeakable and full of glory for those who love him. You and I cannot imagine what that day will be like when sin is no more. Death is no more. Darkness is no more. The late Tim Keller answered Sam's question when he wrote in reference to the resurrection of Christ. Remember Sam's question? Is everything sad going to come untrue? Tim Keller said this, everything sad is going to come untrue and it will somehow be greater for having once been broken and lost. There is evil, and evil is at work in our fallen world. And all things evil are hard at work to kill, steal, and destroy all that can be in defiance and in hatred of God and every one of his good and perfect gifts from above. The greatest manifestation of all God's good and perfect gifts will culminate in that day when all that is sad becomes untrue and all will be seen and known to be greater for having been broken and lost. Until we see that with our own eyes, we must see it through the eyes of faith. James reminds us that God is working, that God is working in us to do good to a good end. God is working in us to a good end. And we can be assured 
of that. For in him there is no variation to evil. There is no shadow of turning to darkness at all. God is light and God is good all the time. Last verse, verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Of his own will he brought us forth. The goodness of God can be demonstrated in no greater way than in the fact that it was of his own will that he brought us forth by the word of truth. We were not brought forth in our own will, for we have no will and we have no desire toward God in our fallen condition of sin and death. How did God bring us forth? By his own will and by the word of truth. Why did God bring us forth? That we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. What does that mean to be a kind of first fruits for God? It means that God brought us forth to be consecrated or to be set apart to him for his glorious purpose. Not your own, but for his. But do you know what we can do by God's grace? We can make his glorious purpose our glorious purpose. We can submit our will to his will, and we can walk in the will of God and have our will and his will married together in the purpose and the plan of God. And that is exactly what God wants us to do. Jesus did not die for men to have the opportunity to be saved. Jesus died to accomplish the certain and particular salvation of his people. Jesus spilled his blood and accomplished the finished work of salvation for those he chose in him before the foundation of the world. These he brings forth of his own will by the word of truth. These are his first fruits set apart for his glory. I pray today that you are his first fruits set apart for his glory. That's why it's called first fruits, because the first fruits were set apart, consecrated to God. And every person born again by the Spirit of God is a first fruits to God, set apart, consecrated for His glory. Our good God of His own will brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. Now, in bringing us forth by the word of truth, He calls us to His love, to His goodness, and to His holiness through a life set apart for His glory. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let us prepare to celebrate at this table of thanksgiving what God has done for us through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ come to this table to eat his bread, to drink his wine, and to be renewed, to go back out into the world and make his glory known. Christian, young and old, members of the covenant, come to the table and welcome to Jesus. Please stand for your charge. James writes, blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, shown genuine, he will receive the crown of life. 
Sin is pleasurable for a season, but its end is death. We see, on, we see this, we saw this on display all around us. The pleasurable pursuit of sin. It was on full display in Taylor yesterday at the Pride Festival. The sin they are pursuing is easy to spot. They flaunt it. They show it off. They dress it up. In fact, they are very proud of it. But I want to ask you, church, what about the sin we're not proud of? What about the secret sins we all have that we do not flaunt, that we do not show off, that we are not proud of? Are those sins less sinful because we don't dress them up and we don't show them off? No. They are not less sinful. As the church, we need to deal with our own sin and not ignore it for some other glaring sin problem. We need to address both. God has good and perfect gifts to pour out from above. We need those gifts. Those trapped in sin need those gifts. They need us to receive those gifts so that we can proclaim a gospel to them in word and in deed so that His grace may be seen and they may be saved. Our prayer must be that God would use us to see the souls of men saved as He brings them forth by the word of truth, that they too might be a kind of first fruits of His creatures. This is the gospel we are privileged and commanded to make known, both in word and in deed, for His glory. Amen? Amen. Let us sing our thanks to God. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face and shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The Lord be with you. The Lord bless you. Have a great day.